To the CBO score, because you know you were waiting to make your decision about healthcare until you saw the bill and it just came out. And what yeah, you and we'll talk it. to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not going to be time. I'm just curious if you okay, have the Speak right with now. Shane, please. But you don't. Just... Sick and tired of you guys. The last time you came here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Ben Jacobs, a Guardian reporter apparently getting attacked by Greg Gianforte, the Republican candidate for a House seat in Montana, after asking about the CBO score of the health care bill this week. Now, as David Litt, an ex-Obama speechwriter, wrote on Twitter, good rule of thumb, if you would rather commit second-degree assault than discuss your health care bill, it's not probably a great bill. Gianforte ended up winning his race for Congress, but the healthcare debate continues, and this week's CBO score is informing that debate in D.C. and beyond. I'm joined first for this podcast by Jen Habercorn and Paul Demko, two other Politico reporters. They'll talk about what happened on Capitol Hill this week and the prospects for the Senate bill moving forward. Then after the break, to talk about the economic impact of the CBO score, I sit down with Matt Fiedler, who was the White House's chief economist for the Council of Economic Advisors under the Obama administration. And when I ask him about the CBO score, I'm hoping he won't assault me. Just a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, please help us keep it and keep it going. You can rate us and review us, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Overcast. We should be on all podcast apps. And if we're not, let me know. I'm at ddiamond at politico.com. And with that, let's get to Jen Habercorn and Paul Demko. I'm joined today by senior reporter Jen Habercorn. Hello, Jen. Hey, Dan. And Paul Demko, reporter of everything in healthcare. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me, Dan. You, you sound so excited to be back on the podcast yet again. Of course I am. Dragooned on a Friday afternoon. Another wild week in healthcare in D.C., but at the same time, maybe not that much actually changed. The CBO released its third assessment of the American Healthcare Act, its revised version with the MacArthur Amendment, the Upton Amendment. That drove the news cycle here for a few days. I, I guess my question, Jen, Paul, how much did this new CBO score, which found, again, more than 20 million people, 23 million people this time, fewer would have insurance in a decade, introduce some new wrinkles into the insurance markets and, and instability, how much did that actually change the dynamic on Capitol Hill? On one hand, not really it didn't really change anything because the the report could have been a lot worse for Republicans. I mean, it didn't change things a whole lot. And I think if the score had been even worse, um, you, we would have seen um, a lot of Republicans come out right away and say we should end this. But I think what was interesting is that the CBO score in combination with um, later McConnell did this interview with Reuters in which he said it's going to be really hard to get to 50 or he said we're not there yet um, and it's going to be hard. And I think the combination of those two kind of set this really dour mood on the Hill um, that our colleague Burgess and I picked up on on Thursday. I mean, there's the Republicans always knew this was going to be difficult, but now I think they're really that reality is like staring them in the face. And we saw the same thing in the House. And the question will be, can the Senate come back and repair that. I'm, I'm amused by the description of the CBO score not being as awful because we've gotten normed to this really bad CBO well, score. Right. Relative. Yeah. I mean, how, how much worse would it have had to be? Would there have had to be 5 million more people losing coverage or the deficit effect being 
negative, essentially uh, adding spending? Well, I think the the thing that's jumped out at me and I think um, it has jumped out at lawmakers is this pre-existing condition, this MacArthur waiver. The The CBO said that the waiver would destabilize markets and hurt people with pre-existing conditions. So I think the easy solution for Senate Republicans is, like, the waiver is dead. You know, there's no chance that this is in the Senate bill. So that it kind of gave them clarity in that sense that, okay, MacArthur Amendment, we don't have to deal with the politics around that. We're just going to get rid of it. I think pre-existing conditions under the Affordable Care Act are going to remain the same in anything that the Senate produces. Um, so I think it kind of brought a little focus to things. But you're right. It, this is all relative to 24 million people losing insurance. Now it's just 23 million losing insurance. But there wasn't anything fatal in the um, report. I mean, that we don't have clarity that the bill absolutely will be able to move to the Senate yet. But Which was a big question, whether with, it would comply with Senate budget reconciliation rules. Exactly. CBO didn't find anything or there was nothing to read from the report that proved it is not going to make it over. There still are some questions about that, but when you know, will in we terms when of, will we know for sure if it can't go through and they have to revote and draw it up again? I'm told sometime next week, um, staffers from the Republican and Democratic budget committees will go before the parliamentarian and start to weed through some of these things. The big questions now are: Is there anything in the House bill? Um, that is fatal. There's these questions on, I mean, if we want to get into wonky Senate procedure here, they can strip out line items from the bill and that wouldn't be fatal. But the question is, is there anything that kills the House bill right off the bat? The biggest thing right now is, is there enough savings um, that comes from the HELP committee? They have to find $1 billion there and $1 billion from finance. There's some question is if the stability fund is designated for finance or help. Democrats obviously are going to argue that that's finance savings. Um, Republicans are going to argue that's help savings. And that will have to be sorted out next week. It comes down to the Senate parliamentarian. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think Jen makes a good point. I, the, if there's good news here, it's, it's what didn't happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there was the potential that this bill would would be fatally flawed and would have to go back to the the house and that would just be a mess considering you know how tough it was to get through the first time and um you know by just two votes um and so you know the good news for republicans is they're still kind of where they were before and they still uh, you know the senators still have the opportunity to work through some of these naughty questions that they're trying to to work through particularly around uh, pre-existing conditions and medicaid um so you know they at least didn't go backwards the medicaid issue jen you and burgess got to this in your story this has been the naughtiest part of the Senate negotiation where you have folks from states that have expanded Medicaid Mm -hmm. really digging in their heels. Dean Heller, uh, Bill Cassidy to some extent, saying we don't want to see this program go away. Is there any middle ground that Republicans can get to that's going to be acceptable to the entire caucus? I think it's becoming clear that the expansion will be repealed, but it will be repealed probably much more slowly than the House, maybe five years out. but you're right. These senators from Medicaid expansion states, kind somewhat led by Rob Portman of Ohio right now, are making it clear that they're not going to vote for anything that immediately um, repeals the expansion. At the other end of that spectrum is um, the 
for lack of a better term, the Medicaid inflator rate under per capita caps. A big issue is conservatives want to control overall Medicaid spending much more aggressively, um, perhaps even more aggressively than the House. Uh, that's Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania um, and, and the other conservatives in the Senate. They're really pushing that. So if you kind of think of this as a teeter-totter, a uh, 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 a seesaw, <laughs> um, thinking of my playground equipment, you know, how you come to a compromise between um, controlling overall Medicaid spending and um, satisfying the Medicaid expansion states. Playground equipment, always an apt metaphor when talking about Congress. So, <laughs> Well, don't, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but don't those things kind of have to balance out if you're going to have, you know, a similar cost projection as the House bill? So if you really want to phase out more slowly, which is going to cost a lot more money, then you're probably going to need to find a way to tamp down spending on the other side of that, Right. Yeah, absolutely. Or you go after um, the taxes and you repeal some of the taxes later so that you have more revenue there. Um, all of these things are going to be dials that you turn to find the right amount of money that also keeps the political um, negotiation intact. Beyond the Medicaid issue and to some extent the waivers introduced by, by MacArthur and, and company, are there other pet issues that we might expect to see come up in the Senate Planned Parenthood, for example, that's been a non-starter for several Republican senators. Yeah, I think um, all of these things are going to come into play, I think, a little further down the road. I think getting some agreement on Medicaid, um, tax subsidies, which provision, which uh, consumer protections to eliminate, those are going to be kind of the, the core of a deal. And then it's going to, like, Planned Parenthood, I think, will be a very end-of-the-road conversation. Does Mitch McConnell go to Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski and say, okay, I won't defund Planned Parenthood if you vote for this? Um, I think we'll see something with Alaska because their premiums are so so much higher than the rest of the country. There's going to have to be something in there for Dan Sullivan and Lisa Murkowski, the senators there. Um, you know, And then if they're at like 47 votes, does Mitch McConnell – do what Democrats did in 2010 and Cornhusker kickback and Louisiana purchase and whatever else you need to get those final senators on board. My last question on CBO-related matters. Both of you were on the Hill when the CBO score dropped. I assume you cornered lawmakers to talk <laughs> to them about the CBO score. Did any of them attempt to tackle you? run away. <laughs> what was the reaction well, Jen, in DC versus Montana? Jen was trying well I'll let Jen handle this cuz I was kind of I was kind of bunkered down but um so That's right. Paul and I kind of tag teamed the story and Paul was at his desk writing and I was Ta tag teamed in the writing not in the wrestling sense. I'm exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I was trying to get senators to react. And this was like at five o'clock the score came out so most senators were gone but I just kind of camped out in the Senate basement. And several senators did walk by. Um, and you know, without funny, giving you an answer, yeah, exactly. Well, Democrats did have answers. They they read the school the report immediately and had feedback. Republicans did not seem to read the report right away. And when I asked them, you know, what do you think of this? The answer was always, "Oh, I haven't read it yet. I don't know what's in there." And I tried to give them the top line, and they said, "Oh, well, I want to read the whole report before I comment on it." How conscientious um, of them. Exactly. Exactly. I think there is a pattern there. I'm not sure what it means exactly. Um, yeah, I saw but it. I was not tackled. So, 
I saw somebody I, the the next morning was still giving that answer that hadn't <laughs> read the report. And it's like, okay, I, I I think you can get a pass maybe the evening that it's right, released. Right. But by the next morning, that's really not going to fly. Not, not doing their congressional homework. I thought it was funny or, or, or just so telling. No one had read that report on the Republican side. Yeah. The report that they all wanted to talk about was the HHS report right. on premium rates and how they've gone up in the individual market over the past four years, which certainly an, an interesting and important finding, <laughs> but one coming from a more partisan source, Trump's HHS, and second, not the story that was really mattering this week. Let's think about one other element of, of the news cycle. And Paul, this gets to your beat, the blues plans in Kansas and Missouri moving out of the markets there. And that's that's notable for a few reasons. One, it's even more ammunition that the ACA markets are in trouble. If you're a critic of, of the ACA, you can say, look, they're leaving. And part of the reason they're leaving isn't because of Trump. It's because they've incurred all these losses up to this point. I think the second thing that's notable, the blues have been the backbone of insurance markets. They've been the ones going in into states where Maybe there weren't any other competitors. Mm -hmm. So is this a canary in the coal mine if they're dropping out? I think it's a big problem. Absolutely. I mean, just to look at that specific example, you've got 32 counties there, um, many of which, I think 25 of which are going to have, are potentially going to be bare, are going to have no insurers. So that's, you know, upwards of 50,000 people in the Kansas City market that uh, potentially are going to have no options. Um, so that's a big deal. And that comes on, you know, the heels of, of similar potential problems in Iowa and Nebraska. Um, we saw this in Arkansas, but the blue is stepping back in there. So there's just a lot of nervousness about um, what's going to happen. And insurers are facing, you know, deadlines to, to make decisions. And I want to push back a little on what you said about losses, because uh, Kansas City Star had a, had a terrific piece on this. And they pointed out that, you know, the uh, Blue of Kansas City said it lost $100 million on its individual market business since 2014. But if you look at their overall bottom line profitability, in 2014, they lost $74 million. In 2015, they made $41 million. In 2016, they made $63 million. So their bottom line has improved significantly over the last few years. So it suggests to me that part of the, the, the decision-making dynamic was the uncertainty and not knowing what this marketplace is going to look like because they seem to be on a trajectory. And the, the other thing the article noted was that for the first time in 2016, um, premiums exceeded medical costs in the individual market. They still lost money, but they were making headway on this book of business potentially being profitable. I, I just want to make sure I understand the numbers. So they lost a lot of money the first year. They made money in the next two. How does that add up to $100 million in losses? Are we counting no, both? Sorry. The, the $100 million is what they're saying they lost on their individual book of business. The numbers I'm citing are their overall business, all of their business. So on all their books of business, they made $63 million last year. Is there a sense that these counties go bare and the Trump administration is not going to be as active as the Obama administration was in rushing in and trying to make deals so that the market would be covered? Do we know that? 
I think, I mean, this is this is part of the problem. I think there's just been so many mixed signals from um, the Trump administration and HHS. You know, on the one hand, they, they pass regulations that insurers were really pushing for or enact regulations that, you know, are aimed at stabilizing the market. And they say they want to stabilize the market. But at the same time, they keep doing things to undermine the markets. And every time one of these developments happen, they send out a press release going on and on about how terrible these imploding markets are and how it's all, you know, going up in flames. So insurers are left to just be... Perplexed? Yeah, perplexed. And, and, you know, undergirding all of that is this uh, uncertainty about what's going to happen with the cost-sharing subsidies, this, you know, roughly $7 billion in payments. Another news development this week that there was going to be an update from the Trump White House did they want to drop the lawsuit and essentially have these subsidies ruled illegal? Were they going to extend? They ended up getting a 90-day extension. Right, which pushes it through August, which is basically, you know, the drop-dead date for insurers. Um, and if they're not, if they don't know whether they're going to get this money for the rest of this year and for 2018, uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to stay in these markets. And the administration said they're not even sure if they're going to make the June payment, let yeah. alone anything further. Right, which, you know, which they, I mean, I, I was struck by North Carolina Blues mm-hmm. rate filing yesterday. Yesterday they came being out, Thursday. Thursday, thank you. They came out with essentially two sets of rates. They said, we're going to have to increase premiums by a little over 20% next year. But if we knew we were going to get cost-sharing subsidies, we'd only have to increase them by 8.8%. That's still well above inflation, but last year it was 23%. So that is a really stark example of how big a deal these subsidies are for the markets. I, I think it's worth pointing out Mandy Cohen, the former HHS official, is now running North Carolina's health department mm-hmm. and certainly brought a level of political savvy to releasing two sets of rates, one that kind of put the, the stink eye on the Trump administration and one that says, if the markets were working well, this is this is what it would look like. Are there any other red flags that either of you are seeing about the fate of the ACA this week, whether it is statements from the administration that are are rattling insurers, whether it's something that the insurance industry or hospital industry has come out and said, we need help clarity on, on what's in front of us? Well, I think the, I think the prospects of repeal in the Senate are just – I, I'm feeling that they're way down right now, and um, that if if this bill does fall apart, which I feel like once this um, Memorial Day recess is over, lawmakers come back, um, there might be the start of a bill on the table. I think we'll have some clarity for the long-term prospects for repeal in the Senate, and then if that falls apart, you know what do what do they do about the short-term situation? about CSRs, about the markets next year? Do they do some kind of legislation on bear counties? Um, there are now at least two bills that I know of how to address these uh, these counties. I mean, if they do some kind of short-term legislation, it's going to have to happen pretty soon. Um, the August recess, waiting until after the August recess almost seems out of bounds because it'll be too late by then. Yeah. Um, Just to, to elaborate and to plug Jen's story this week, um, you know, Claire McClaskill, I don't think this had gotten any attention, introduced legislation to address those Bear Counties. And I'll let you explain what that would do. Yeah, it would essentially allow people in the Bear Counties to take their subs, 
to um, to move into um, the DC exchange to you know quote unquote give people the same coverage as members of Congress. And she argues that it would work because you know there's already congressional staffers across the country that are in the DC exchange um, because of the the requirement that lawmakers and their staffs be under the Affordable Care Act. Um, so she's pushing that. There's also a bill from Lamar Alexander, which would allow people to take their subsidies and apply it to off-exchange plans. Um, neither of those bills are getting any traction right now just because repeal is taking all the attention. But, um, you know, Republicans had hoped that if this, if these bare counties existed in states with Democratic senators, it would bring them to the table. Um, when I asked McCaskill that question, you know, she said, it's disingenuous. Republicans are not asking us to the table at all. So, you know, there's there's no – that's just political rhetoric. But if we see more states where this is happening and repeal is looking dimmer and dimmer, we could see those conversations erupt into real legislation. You mentioned we're on the verge of another recess. That's when some Senate staffers on the Republican side are going to hash out the beginning of the legislation and talk to the parliamentarian. So that's what will happen in D.C. Meanwhile, the congressional staff or Congress is going back out on on town hall circuit to some extent. There are not actually that many town halls scheduled for next week. There has been scuttlebutt. Among, what a coincidence. Well, I this is this is my question to both of you. There's been scuttlebutt pushed forward by liberals that these town halls can be a game changer, that they can get Republicans to back off their legislation. Have we seen any evidence of that actually happening? Well, I, I mean, if you look at the – I don't see a direct correlation, but I will say this. If you look at some of the polling data that's come out about the American Health Care Act – Quinnipiac this week said it's a 20 percent approval rating. Yeah, and, and it's kind of all over the map. There was also a poll that just came out this morning from Pre- Protect Our Care, you know, pro-Obamacare group that showed 40 percent. Um, but still, the numbers aren't good. So I, I think you got to believe that some of the organizing around town halls, some of the negative um, messaging that came out of them has, uh, you know, sullied this bill um, with the American public. And politicians pay attention to mm-hmm. <laughs> those things. Um, yeah, and are I think responsive. that's why there are very few Republican town halls scheduled for this week. Yeah. I th- well, because they're trying to avoid not just the getting yelled at, but the optics also of being in that viral clip that gets shared on on late night TV. Absolutely. And I mean, politicians are human beings. Um, You know, does anyone want to walk into a gymnasium of thousands of people yelling at them? You know, that just doesn't sound fun. I can think of some basketball players who enjoy that. But I guess it's a somewhat different dynamic when they're trying to take your job. (laughs) Last question. It's the end of May. This healthcare push has been flagging, bouncing back for weeks now. Do we think that by the August recess, the Senate will have passed health care? Yes or no? Will it happen? I, I'd be a no, but I think Jen probably has a better read on this than me. I lean no as well, um, but that's that's the temperature right at this moment. And we saw the House go up and down. I mean, if we look back at what we had been predicting throughout the House process, it changed all the time. This is a temporary no. I think when they come back after this recess, we'll have an idea whether that's a, a hard no or a soft no. Yeah, and it's inter- to think back on the House process, it's interesting to look back and see how little 
changed so much in terms of the dynamic. We had these two amendments that ultimately appeared basically inconsequential in the CBO score this week. And yet they managed to... consequentially negative for the people with pre-existing conditions. That's true. But I was thinking in the overall like coverage and, and financial score. And yet those altered the dynamics enough from spectacular flame-out failure to bringing on board enough moderates and conservatives to 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 get passage. Um, it doesn't make a lot of logical sense to me, but that's what <laughs> happened. I think you're trying to apply logic to an illogical situation. Yeah, I mean, the political, dynamic, <laughs> the political <laughs> dynamics are... are don't don't necessarily, um, I guess, follow logic. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> the the House bill was a triumph of the political process and a major failure of the policy one because it's not clear that it would have actually made healthcare in America better. Yes, there would have been some winners, but the number of losers seemed to vastly out outweigh that. And yet the bill passed. So I suppose the Senate process maybe it will be more rigorous, partly because senators aren't as bound to the election process. Some of them might even outweigh President Trump. He, he goes up for re-election in 2020. Some of them are in seat until 2022. But it certainly feels like if any, uh, any stop is going to happen, we will know that in the next few months. And, and I think the consequences get more real the further you get along in this process. Mm-hmm. So the, the House, I mean, part of what was motivating them was just to get rid of this albatross <laughs> and push it over to the Senate. Um, so, but now there, there was a funny moment in the Rose Garden ceremony where they were joking about that. Where Paul Ryan said something like, "My colleagues in the Senate, I know they're excited to take this up," <laughs> yeah. and they all laughed. But I think there was a real w- weariness among the, the House members of just getting bogged down on this. So, but but in the Senate, you know, they passed something. You're getting pretty close to it. Uh, being enacted. So the, the the consequences ratchet up. And in the Senate, I mean, Mitch McConnell does not want this to drag on. He's going to have a vote. Um, even if they know it's going to fail, he wants a definitive end. He doesn't want this like lingering thing hanging over their heads for months and months and months. So I'm, I'm pretty confident that there is going to be a vote before August recess, um, whether it's successful or not. We can't say right now. And your your story this week got to how McConnell is so deliberate. The fact that this week, if he's saying, I'm not sure how we get there, mm-hmm. many Republicans are taking that as a sign that if McConnell is saying this out loud right now, we should be more pessimistic about the process than perhaps has been widely reported. Definitely. Jen Habercorn, Paul Demko, thank you for joining Pulse Check for another News Roundup. It was fun. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Hey, it's Dan Diamond. And just a reminder, we are doing a podcast survey here at Politico to get a sense for how you are listening to our podcast and what we can do better. It's a two-minute survey. Just go to politico.com slash podcast survey. All one word, politico.com slash podcast survey. And now I'm joined by Matt Fiedler from the Brookings Institution and the former chief economist for the Obama administration's Council of Economic Advisors. One reason I wanted to talk to you for this podcast was because of your work analyzing the Republican bill to replace mm-hmm. the ACA. And it's the end of May. We've, we've now gone several weeks since the bill was passed. The new CBO score has just come out, and, and we'll tackle that in a second. But you had analyzed before Republicans even voted that the effects of the bill would be far greater than was frequently acknowledged. And I want 
I want to make sure I get this right because I'm not sure I got it right in Politico Pulse <laughs> and many others have, have tripped over the nuance. But the Republican bill creates the conditions where insurers could potentially, if states pursue certain waivers, set up a cheaper market for younger, healthy folks who would gravitate toward that market and then leaving the sicker patients with pre-existing conditions to pay higher premiums. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's, that's basically right. Um, that the there's an option. Essentially, the way that the legislation set up, if you don't have continuous coverage, um, you can be underwritten. You can be charged a different premium based on your health status rather than everyone being charged the same premium. And in practice, the way it's set up, probably anyone who wanted to, whether or not they had a gap in coverage, could opt into that market where they get a health status-based premium. You had warned of this before Republicans voted. I think it was featured on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and the, the analysis went wide. So there, I think there are a couple different analyses here. One is the community rating provisions. The other is essential health, the essential health benefits waiver. I think the one, uh, the analysis that got picked up by the journal was the essential health benefits waiver. Which followed analysis. after the MacArthur Amendment, the late, the late change that brought on the holdout Republicans right. that gave more flexibility to states to weaken the essential health benefits rules. Right. So both of these are sort of different prongs of the MacArthur Amendment. So these changes were contained in the MacArthur Amendment. Yep. Do you think the MacArthur Amendment made the bill better or worse? I think it pretty clearly made it worse. And, you know, I think this is, obviously, it didn't change the coverage number very much, but I think the discussion we've had around the MacArthur Amendment um, illustrates why focusing just on the number of people who lose coverage can can miss certain things. In particular, you know, what CBO said yesterday is... The, what CBO said with its Wednesday release. With its yeah. Wednesday release, yes, yeah. um, was that even among people who remained covered, there would be often shifts in costs towards people who had more significant health needs. And then in certain markets, you would have a situation where you had healthy people coming in and sicker people being pushed out of the market. And if we think about the goal of health insurance being to ensure you know, financial security and that people can get the care they need, the you know, damage to those objectives of losing one sick person um, is much larger than the benefit of gaining one healthy person. And I think what's very striking about this, I, I wrote about this in, in Politico Pulse on Thursday, Republicans, when the MacArthur Amendment was unveiled, said, this will make the bill better. This is what I needed as Republican moderate or House Freedom Caucus member. This is what I needed to get behind our push. And with the CBO score, it, it feels very much like that was not true, that the protections, the coverage expansion, whatever it might be, that's just not going to be achieved by this last-minute change. I mean, I think, as you know very well, I think there's a uh, diversity of objectives among House Republicans. And I think there probably are some House Republicans, at least my sense, just reading things that are said in the press, that are uncomfortable with the fact that insurance, by its very nature, sort of redistributes across people with different health statuses. I think if if you have a sort of moral or ethical objection to that, then I can actually see how the community rating waiver um, would would make the bill better from your perspective. Um, and the essential health benefits waivers potentially as well. If that's not your orientation, then it's pretty hard to reach that conclusion. Well, another objective of the bill isn't as much around health care. It's around potential savings and the setup for tax reform. According to the CBO analysis, this bill now saves $119 billion 
uh, toward toward the deficit over over a decade. In your professional opinion, as someone who worked in the White House on economic issues, $119 billion in savings, a lot or a little? So it's it, certainly in the context of tax legislation, it's it's not a, a huge um, huge amount of money. I I think when they have talked about when Republicans have talked about setting up tax reform, it's less about the net deficit savings and more about the six hundred some billion of tax cuts that are already in this bill, which otherwise would have to be taxed on, tacked onto a later um, tax bill. So I, I think you know the objective here is they know they're they're going to have some revenue constraint on whatever tax bill they do down the road um and this is a you know the cuts that they're getting out of medicaid and out of um, the subsidies is a way of taking some of those tax cuts off the table so that revenue constraint later um, doesn't bind as tightly one argument against the cbo score this week is that the cbo is just not to be trusted and to be fair i've heard democrats over the years complain about cbo scores being off being unreliable how reliable is the cbo when you look at the span of it so i mean we should be clear cbo is you know they're not oracles they don't they don't get to sort of you know, the, the, talk the, to the, the o and cbo is not an oracle yes element. yes they don't get to talk to the gods and tell us what's going to happen and then um and then and then come back with an answer they're relying on the same body of economic theory and empirical evidence that um, you know other economists are working with, and so they're it's they're going to be sort of bound by the same limitations there. That said, I think there are a number of reasons to be very confident in the types of analyses they produce. I think first is the culture over there of sort of ruthless truth telling. Um, is is an incredibly productive and effective one, um, and I think one that benefits the country at large. And then in the context of this particular analysis, there's been a lot of discussion of you know what CBO did and didn't get right with the ACA. They got the sort of overall coverage gain pretty right. Um, they you know, just didn't have the mechanism quite right. right. And and it's interesting to think about you know why you might not get the mechanism quite right. You know a lot and, of cases, and I should say what I mean by that is they. To your point, they predicted about how many people would get covered. They just expected more through the individual market exchange, not through Medicaid. Right. And and then depending on which um, generation of their analysis, there were sort of different assumptions about what would happen to employer coverage in the process as well. And I think often what you have in these analyses is you can have people who are sort of on the boundary of being in one bucket versus the other. So if you don't know exactly what the income distribution looks like, and so you don't know how many people are going to qualify for Medicaid versus how many people are going to qualify for subsidies, um, because our data are imperfect, that has a big effect on sort of how many people get coverage where, but doesn't have a big effect on how many people have coverage in total. I think the other advantage they have in the context of analyzing the AHCA is they've just seen the ACA go into effect and what happened to the uninsured rate. And so when you have a bill that is basically rolling back each of the main components of the ACA's reforms, um, you've got very current and very applicable evidence on, on what you think the consequences of that might be. There, there's more evidence now to predict the effects of health care than there were eight years ago when they were trying to predict what the ACA might do. Right, particularly with respect to the specific policy changes we're, we're talking about right now. And I think another striking note is that while HHS Secretary Tom Price has come out and said the CBO is wrong, we can't trust the CBO, he signed off on the CBO's chairman back when Tom Price was running the House Budget Committee. This, this is a Republican nominee leading this office. Right. And I, I think the interesting thing is it traditionally hasn't mattered that much who's leading the office in some way, that there's such a sort of strong 
career staff with such a strong culture um, that um, that produces sort of high quality output um, and and dispassionate output under a wide range of circumstances. So flipping from a, in, in your words, a nonpartisan down the road analysis of where things are to a more partisan look at where things are, HHS this week just put out a new report on premiums in the individual market, an ASPE report. House Speaker Paul Ryan was up on Thursday morning holding this report up at his press conference. This is the report that Republicans want to be talking about this week. And according to HHS analysis, individual market premiums have more than doubled since the ACA took effect. Since Obamacare went into effect, average health care premiums have doubled nationwide. Remember, remember when President Obama promised that his health care plan would lower the typical family's premiums by up to $2,500? Under Obamacare, average premiums have gone up by nearly $3,000. Paul Ryan says this is an indictment of, of the ACA. Is he wrong? Yes. So... You know, when you, you think about that statistic, there are, I would say, three really important things to think about. One is you me- want to remember what the, uh, what the individual market was before the ACA. It was a market where we were, where insurers were locking out people who had serious health needs. Naturally, that's going to make claims costs and therefore premiums lower. It and was, and, and in, inversion, uh, inverted of that. Once those sicker people come into the market, premiums are going to go up. That's right. That's right. It was also a market where coverage tended to be a lot um, less generous, both in terms of the cost sharing, you know, deductibles, coinsurance, et cetera, for the uh, services that were covered, but also where fewer services tended to be covered. So you were talking about a worse insurance product, even for the people who could get into the market. And then the other important thing to keep in mind, um, you know, if you're so, so, so it's not a surprise that premiums would be higher once you've got a, a broad swath of people in the market and you've got better coverage. The third piece, I, I think, to, just to keep in mind, is the, the ACA introduced very large tax credits for you know, low and moderate income people uh, and middle income people to purchase coverage on the individual market, which has meant that you know, that increase in the sticker premium has not translated into an increase in what um, you know, many people on the market are paying. Right. For many folks, these premium numbers that are being touted aren't real because at the end of the day, their price is much lower. That's right. And I've, I've heard this from lots of Obama folks that comparing now to then it's like it's not comparing apples to apples it's comparing apples to big big juicy granny smith apples to crab apples that no one would want to eat i guess the the counter would be that if you are someone who doesn't need health insurance if you are that young 25 year old 28 year old who doesn't need to use much health care maybe you are fine with that skinny plan that doesn't exist anymore in the aca world and I think, you know, so if you're a you know, high-income person who's not eligible for tax credits and a reasonably healthy person, then you can find yourself in that position. And I think to some of that um, comes back to a fundamental, you know, the ethical question uh, we were talking about earlier about how you feel about pooling financial risk between healthier people and sicker people. And frankly, I'm basically okay with that. Um, but I think there's a diversity of opinions. The interesting point is if you look at employer coverage, we basically, we do that entirely, right? Anyone who has coverage through their work, it's not like we charge lower premiums to younger workers, not like we charge um, lower premiums to healthier workers. Um, everyone pays the same premium. 
Um, so that's, I think, correctly we, something that you know private firms have concluded is sort of the right way to structure this type of uh, arrangement, and I think it's the right thing for the individual market as well. Last question. Stepping back from this political fight, your purview in the White House was healthcare writ large. Mm-hmm. What are we missing with all of this focus and, and the back and forth between the ACA, AHCA? What, what is the healthcare issue for the economy that is getting overlooked? So, you know, we've been talking a lot about insurance markets, naturally, in the course of the ACA and AHCA debate, but there's a whole delivery system that sits underneath that is insurance markets, which is, you know, doctors and hospitals that are actually providing care to the people who have coverage, and in some cases to some people who don't. We know that there's a lot that we need to be doing to make that um, delivery system function better, both in terms of cost and quality than it is now. A big focus, in fact, of the work that I was doing in the administration was the administration's delivery system reform agenda, particularly its payment reform agenda, to you know continue the process of moving away from fee-for-service payment towards approaches to payment that looked at you know episodes of care or the entirety of care um, somebody received over the course of the year. I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done to push that agenda fully to scale. Um, and unfortunately, we're not doing it right now. And frankly, some of the particular round bundled payments, some of the actions we've seen out of the administration yeah. while we've been sort of focused on the HCA are going in the other direction, unfortunately. Yeah. It, you would think that there would be bipartisan support for delivery system reform. There certainly has been in Congress. But this administration, for various reasons, Tom Price has never been a fan of some of the aggressive changes that the last administration was pushing to delivery system reform, that seems to be on ice. And this is the healthcare issue, for better or worse, that's getting all the, the oxygen in the room. Matt Fiedler, Brookings, thank you so much for making time. Thanks for having me. That's it for Pulse Check this week. Thanks so much to The Guardian and Ben Jacobs for the audio. Thanks to Matt Fiedler from Brookings for making time and Jen and Paul for letting me dragoon them once again. And thank you to Bridget Mulcahy for pitching in and doing this podcast from the road. If you like Pulse Check, please rate us and review us on a podcast app. You can contact me at ddiamond at politico.com. And we'll be-